0: Please fasten your seat belts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout days. No blackout days. No
1: blackout dates. No blackout dates.
0: One of the I'd say most underappreciated technologies modernizing the world are motorcycles. Is that because it makes transportation attainable? That has suddenly brought the hinterlands into connection with the hub.
1: What's up, everyone, and welcome to season three of No Blackout Dates. It's our very first episode of our brand new season. And not only that, it's about two years exactly since we started the show in the first place. So huge milestone for us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here. We're so excited to be back. I'm excited to see Tim's face again. Yeah, it's been too long. You've not aged a single day. Noting my extended pause so that you could compliment me back, but that's okay.
2: Well, you know, yeah, Evan, I can tell the season's changed because you're wearing flannel now. You look like you just got back from Colorado.
1: We've got a new hot takes, new guests, an incredible slate of new guests, which kicks off today with Kevin Kelly, the founder of Wired Magazine. That's right.
2: This is an episode I've been looking
1: forward to uh, ever since Kevin agreed to do it. And uh, Kevin,
2: as Eben noted, is one of the founders of Wired magazine. He's also one of the world's most celebrated futurists, a firm believer that the coming decades will be made better and more livable by human progress rather than the other way around. Specifically, Kevin spent most of his lifetime producing this new three-volume book, Vanishing Asia, containing over 9,000 photos of his travels through 35 countries on the world's largest continent to document vanishing cultures and lifestyles. We have a lot to talk about with Kevin, and we are going to get into it as soon as we get through the first Hot Takes round of Season
1: 3. Evan, you want to kick us off? Yeah, so with the spirit of today's conversation about technology, Tim... Do you use an international plan when you travel on your cell phone, or do you take the opportunity to go on airplane mode, disconnect a bit?
2: It depends on the trip. I have, for longer trips, uh, particularly in Asia, swapped out a SIM card for a local SIM card uh, and been able to kind of call and text and browse as normal. Generally, uh, though, if I am only going somewhere for a week, maybe less, I'm not gonna make any changes, I'm just gonna pay the, the $10 travel fee each day that I use my phone, and I'll do my best to avoid that by connecting to Wi-Fi.
1: For me, I feel like it's the angel and devil kind of sitting on my shoulder. The, like the angel is, just take this time to disconnect, go on airplane mode, You know, whether wherever it is. Maybe it's four or five day trips, usually how long they are. When you're not in your hotel, you're off Wi-Fi, just enjoy the place, be in the moments, take it in the sights talk to the people and then at the end of the day when everything's done you go back to your room you relax you connect to wi-fi and all your you know you can search online get your texts post on instagram do whatever you want to do and i kind of i do kind of enjoy that i enjoy the delayed gratification but uh, the devil on my other shoulder is whispering just do an international plan, you need the data, you need to text all day, and you need the familiar access to to technology that you have in your everyday life. And it's tough for me to, to, to fight that. Usually I do the airplane mode strictly for financial reasons, but I was debating which one to do on this upcoming trip to Scotland that I have, and I'm not sure which side is winning out yet.
2: Right, well, I, I will say that uh, the last time I swapped out a SIM card was when I spent a good amount of time in Bali and I remember calling people back home and never getting a single person to answer the phone. And it took me a while to be like, you know, the reason why no one's answering is because it's an Indonesian phone number. They don't know who the hell is calling them and they think it's spam. So make sure you let people know if you do go with any type of uh, new SIM card or foreign phone number.
1: I also get nervous swapping out a SIM card. They're so small. And if you damage them a little bit or if you damage the tray, you might not be able to put it back in. Then you're just fucked for the rest of the trip you know you don't have any sim card you have no access to anything so that's that happened to me one time years ago and now i'm just like i get weird around sim cards like i don't want to touch it i just want to leave it in okay well my my question for you Evan, today
2: is along the same lines tying into technology i'm curious when you're traveling if there's a piece of technology that you feel is missing right now that would make international travel a, a lot easier
1: yeah a teleport device
2: that was that was a quick answer
1: <laughs> I, I've been telling my parents since I was a kid that I, cause I hated car trips. I hated, you know, I still hate flying, honestly, like not cause I'm scared of it. I just hate the whole process of being in security lines and going through TSA and then getting on the plane and waiting teleport device. So easy. Just press the button. Boom. You're there. I love being in new places, but I hate the act of traveling to get there. I'm a destination guy. I'm not a journey guy. I think we're still a ways off from that. But I don't know. What do you think? I would say just global Wi-Fi. I think you know
2: Starlink is probably working towards solving this problem, as are a lot of other things. But I, it, it's it's frustrating to me when I land in a new place or really go anywhere and you're so accustomed to getting on your phone to book an Uber, find a restaurant, do whatever it is that you need to do. Uh, when you have to first worry about getting on a, on a Wi-Fi network and finding a password or going to a coffee shop, that's frustrating right. to me.
1: Well, and this is goes to my question, which is re- totally reliant on the availability of Wi-Fi. So you don't need an international plan because most people have either iMessage or uh, WhatsApp, right. and you can you text just them need, over you Wi-Fi. You just need Wi-Fi. It's all you, you need. You just need Wi-Fi. Yeah. So uh, the problem is some rest, and I'm not talking about lower-income countries, but if you go to places in Europe, some restaurants just don't have Wi-Fi, and they kind of pride themselves on not having Wi-Fi. They're like, no, 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 you have to disconnect when you're here. I'm like okay, well, I might choose to not go to this restaurant because I I have to stay in touch with somebody or I have to meet somebody and I need to communicate with them. So I want to be sure of having Wi-Fi. So yeah, if there was Wi-Fi at every restaurant, forget on the street, if there was just at every restaurant, every museum, wherever, I would have no need for an international plan. That devil wouldn't be on my shoulder at all. So yeah, I'm with you. Global Wi-Fi. You know, it's funny. I was telling some of my friends this the other day, and
2: I think one of them got it, but the rest of them thought I was crazy. But I was saying the end of phone service, as we know it, is near. Like, in in the next decade or two, a phone plan won't even be necessary because look, you can you can use Facebook, WhatsApp. You have to have a phone number, but I imagine eventually that will be ditched. You can use all these different apps, Telegram, stuff that doesn't require a phone plan to call, text. Uh, uh, video conference, you can do all this stuff now without even needing a phone plan. So what if you're if you're traveling regularly and moving across borders, having a phone plan and having to pay $50, $60 a month for that plan is going to become more of an inconvenience than a convenience.
1: Exactly. I was thinking the other day about the only people I actually speak to not via Wi-Fi, so not through iMessage uh, or through WhatsApp, are people with Androids. And those are the only people that I can't text over Wi-Fi. And I mean, even they, they have WhatsApp too, or they can have WhatsApp. But if you just solve the whole Android iPhone texting over Wi-Fi issue, when I go abroad, I can text everyone back home with an iPhone over Wi-Fi. I don't have to text them any differently. I don't even need WhatsApp. It's the people that have Androids. So I have to be like, hey, do you have a WhatsApp? Because otherwise we can't keep in touch. So it's if you just bridge that gap, you don't need, you don't need anything to text people back home. There's all kinds of, there's Facebook, there's Signal, there's all kinds of stuff.
2: Yeah, and everybody uses WhatsApp or Signal these days. Like, who doesn't have at least one of those apps? Every time I'm, when I'm abroad, always, when I'm hanging out with locals or other expats or whatever it might be, everybody is texting on WhatsApp.
1: What is Signal?
2: It's the same thing as WhatsApp, but it's decentralized. So it's it's like... It's like uh,
1: safer, right? It's more secure.
2: Yeah. It's everything is encrypted and it's not owned by a single entity. So it's not owned by a Facebook or a Google or something. Okay. It's like, it's just a secure app.
1: I, I only know about it cause I have one friend who's super paranoid and he thinks like the government is monitoring everything that we do, which maybe they are, but I don't care. I have nothing to hide. So he insists on texting over signal and everyone that wants to communicate with him has to text him over signal. And I refuse to get signal. I'm not going to get Signal just to talk to one person. It seems weird. So I'm the only person that he talks to over regular text and everyone else he talks to over Signal. And it just seems bizarre to me to get an app that I don't need, that texting and WhatsApp kind of, WhatsApp is the encrypted version of texting. I can do that if I want. Uh, Who knows? Maybe it's the future, but for now, I don't really get it.
2: Yeah, it's 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 the future. Uh, as soon as cryptocurrency replaces fiat currency, then, yeah. then the <laughs> okay. So <laughs> a, a distant future. <laughs>
1: yeah. In the meantime, Android people figure it out.
2: Right. All right. Well, uh, with that, I think we'll get into it with Kevin, and we'll see you on the other side.
1: Kevin Kelly is the co-founder of Wired magazine. He's also a photographer, a writer, conservationist. And we're excited to talk to him today about his travels through Asia and his work documenting the continent's vanishing cultures in his book, Vanishing Asia. Kevin, welcome to the show. Oh, it's my privilege to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited. Yes, or we... So before we get into it, I guess I want to clarify with regard to your book, what exactly causes
0: a culture to vanish? You could almost say... That cultures naturally vanish. There is, um, you know, an ebb and flow of thoughts, ideas, values over time. So, what happened to the Greeks? Well, they kind of vanished, but they were also absorbed into the Romans, and you know, etc. We have bits of this culture. So, so there's a kind of a natural evolution of cultures to, to vanish. They're, they're kind of replaced by something else. And what's happening in Asia is the traditional stage of, of that culture, the oral, handmade version of it, is evolving into a more modern version. So uh, you could say sort of progress is what, in this case, is what's causing the traditional handmade version to disappear, just as it disappeared in our own culture?
1: So is this a good or a bad? And there's a big gray area here. But is this a good or a bad thing in your eyes? Is this the extinguishing of, you know, a centuries-old tradition, and this is something to be mourned, or is this the celebration of uh,
0: an evolution mm-hmm. of a culture and progress? I don't know if we can say we can celebrate it, but I, I would say that the I would say that the there's a net positive that's happening and um, that there are good things about this shift and there are some negatives and in this process of you know leaving behind things made by hand we have things made by machines and generally we're going to take the ones made by machines as as they will too so 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 like one of the very first things that is replaced anywhere in the world uh, is steel for knives it's like I mean making your own iron is so difficult and iron so malleable that you if you can have it machine-made you will take it and the second thing is machine-made cloth making cloth by hand is so laborious that's one of the first things that goes away How, but you know handmade cloth there's there's a beauty to it there's a certain the imperfections are kind of interesting um, so that is the the natural evolution so there's something lost in in that kind of the handmade attention but any nobody in their right mind is making cloth by hand unless it's an artisanal thing being sold for lots more money than they would any local would pay so um i think in general um i don't want i'm not mourning the loss of these traditional cultures I am celebrating the fact that they were there and that you can still get little touches of them and that we should know about these alternatives. But it's a good thing that that's not the only choice. And that's, I think, the main thing that you get is these options are kind of still available, but we have other choices as well. You can live in a handmade house and all its downsides but if you don't want to deal with that, you can live in the concrete box with Wi-Fi, which is what most people are choosing. And, and before, someone growing up in a village did not have that choice. So for me, what technology gives us are choices. If you want to live like the Amish, you can do that. But you don't have to. And so the fact that we have a choice, to me, is an unalloyed great good.
2: So... For this book, Vanishing Asia, you spent decades traveling to more than 35 countries, as you put it, traveling to the end of the road in many of those countries, 9,000-some photos. Throughout this process, did you have kind of an end result in mind, or did this become apparent to you throughout the journey that I need to document this, this is important because it's going away?
0: This the latter. I, I, when I, I left 50 years ago, I... Um, when I was about 20, and um, I had no idea, I mean, I I, I I, had really never been out of New England, I had never eaten Chinese food, I had never picked up chopsticks, I knew nothing, and I arrived at this place for the first time, Hong Kong, Taiwan, in 72, and my mind was blown, it was like, oh my gosh, I, I, it was like there's this other world, and it's transparent and visible, because everybody works outside, and um, I was just i was just um i don't know overwhelmed and i didn't really have any agenda other than i wanted to be a photographer and it took me a while before i kind of focused on photographing these disappearing things mostly because not because they were disappearing but because they were other because they were so different than what i was used to and and again there is a beauty in them and so um so I started to focusing on that. And then over time, I started to, with my own eyes, see how they were disappearing, coming back to a place that I had visited earlier and already seeing it transformed and just seeing the rate at which this was being transformed. So that sort of sent me into the corners to look at for those things that were other. And I was really looking for otherness rather than for the past. But those two happened to, to coincide. It was, and originally, I wanted to be a magazine photographer. I grew up in magazines. My father worked for a magazine a company, and I was total magazine junkie. I, you know, I started my own magazines. I worked for a magazine later on. I helped start a magazine. So I was, I was thinking in terms of magazines as I was, uh, in more into doing the travel, um, and that didn't happen. I kind of went a different way in magazines in terms of the writing rather than the photography. And so um, years later, many, many, many years later, I decided that the best thing to do would be book. I love books. And so I decided I'd make a book. And that was a, that was a late, that was a late idea. So, so I was mostly interested in the otherness initially.
1: Now, how do you go about finding a vanishing culture? Like you're traveling throughout Asia are you uh, kind of immersed in your own travels and uh, you kind of stumble upon these things or are you intentionally looking for certain things and you know where to go and you know who to talk to
0: I was intentionally hunting them and I was at a disadvantage in the early days because there were no guidebooks to where I was Mm -hmm. and a lot of the people who were traveling back then the kind of hippies were interested in sort of hanging out where it was cheap, drugs were free, maybe there was a party scene. I was absolutely not into that at all. I had no interest in sharing that. I was interested in these things of, where is the intact culture happening? Where is that area where they're still wearing costumes? And um, that information was mostly coming kind of word of mouth and, or I, I read National Geographic's looking for evidence of people who had seeing something interesting and then whether I could get to it with very little money because I was at this, I was traveling in the seventies at this really interesting moment when for the first time you could kind of get to some places with, uh, on your, on your own with a Jeep and very little money and not needing an expedition and porters and people to move into, you know, somewhere. So, um, so it was through research. I was reading old histories, trying to get um, accounts of people who had visited maybe some valley somewhere that something they talked about some interesting aspect. And 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 the honest answer is, without that guidance, I spent a lot of my time with dead ends, boring places. I went to more boring cities than than we should go because I had no idea that they were boring. I was just like, well, I'll head and see what's happening there. So. I deliberately was hunting. I, I I, was working, trying to find these places, reading, asking people, looking for any evidence of someone else, like an old book who had seen the valley somewhere or some area where they still had intact culture, and trying to get to it cheaply because I had very little money.
2: You noted you left in 72. A lot has happened there, you know, on on the... Bad end, you've had the Khmer Rouge. On the good end, you've had China opening up more to the world, all these things that have kind of played out over the course of 50 years. How much of a role does geographic isolation play in a culture either being preserved or, or vanishing, as you saw?
0: Uh, uh, a huge amount. You know, like if today, if you want to see some kind of a less developed area, you'd go to Myanmar, which was called Burma. And that was deliberately, intentionally Cut off from the outside by the by the military um, dictatorship, and so um, that has had a huge in, impact. There, were, you know, there were places in the Himalayas that were our off limits to almost anybody, and they have retained some of those old ways. And in some cases, that was its purpose. In other cases, was to um, prevent or block political d- dissidents. Um, parts of India in and Himala- in the Nagaland, so the border, um, Burma, you know, Myanmar, are, were off limits for a very long time. And that was not, it was in part to kind of protect them, but in part to prevent political uprest. And so, um, so yes, I, I think um, geographical isolation, political isolation was a huge thing. Um, but increasingly um, it's not as important as it used to be politically yes, but geographically no and 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 um, one of the I say most underappreciated technologies modernizing the world, the number two item after cell phones are motorcycles.
2: Is that because it makes transportation attainable? without roads
0: yeah okay and th- that's okay. the thing is is that uh these cheap chinese and you know asian uh, motorcycles can carry incredible loads and you can go up a trail that um seems almost impossible well it is impassable to any kind of other vehicle and so you don't need to build these very expensive roads you can send your goods uh, people can get into hospitals um, there's even uh, kids that commute to school using really cheap motorcycles. And that has suddenly brought um, the hinterlands, that and the cell phone, have really brought the most remote place into the connection with the hub. And, and, um, and, and, and you know people will carry building materials on the back. I mean, they'll just load these things up, overload them. Carrying, and then you can rent them. Moto taxis are everywhere. And even if you don't have a taxi, there's some guy in a corner who will drive you anywhere into the hills, or as far away as you want, for not very much money. And so, um, motorcycle cheap motorcycles are just rapidly changing the, the whole texture of uh, remote or rural areas that were once waiting, you know, years if not centuries for someone to build roads, which probably won't ever be built. So is there a correlation
1: at all between a culture disappearing, however slowly, and a place's economic situation? I guess I'm just trying to zero in on what is the common factor that makes these cultures throughout Asia, which is obviously a huge, huge swath of land um, and are obviously very different from each other, vanish. So, are wealthier places, places more technologically advanced, more likely to see their culture become diluted and gradually fade? Yeah.
0: So, so I, I, again, um, yes. So, I define Asia as everywhere between Turkey and Japan and Siberia down to Indonesia or or even um, Borneo. Um, and I think, um, like China, let's just say China. This huge thing. China China culture is rapidly changing it's not their fathers China anymore the young people are making a entirely new modern chinese culture it has some attributes of the past but what's disappearing from china very rapidly in fact they're china bulldozing these old places is the handmade ancient version of of China and so it morphs into something the the certain aspects of it disappear others of them are transformed and so um, and that is generally economic development that is that is doing this you know initially when you're growing up in these traditional cultures everything is indigenous you have to make your home from what is found nearby once you have transportation and stuff, you can make your home from things that are far away. And some of those far away things may be other things that people have made, like a, a roof tile or something. So instead of making your own roof tile, you can buy one. That's That begins to change, but you're still buying it from another part in China. So, so culture is very, very complex. And the... And, and it's not like the culture is being replaced. It's like it's like practices are being certain aspects of it are disappearing. The whole culture is not going away. The whole culture is transforming. But there are particular practices, particular um, what's the word you want um, uh, actions, objects, you know, textures, rituals. Th- those are are going away, and so. Um, And that's what I'm trying to capture in this book. And I also noticed that there was a a sequence of things that would leave. And first to go was costume. Again, because this idea that that making your own clothes is incredibly tedious. And um, there's an identity to it. But um, people would (laughs) rather have the cheap T-shirt than to have their own distinctive robe. And so... um, First goes costumes, and then goes um, architecture, and um, then goes uh, music, and then goes food, and then language. And so um, uh, for me, if you had a place that had the costume, they'd have all these other things as well. Um, And so those are the kinds of things that are going away. some ideas about the relationship of your parents and the the role of the individual in society may not change at all but you're going to wear a t-shirt instead of your robe we're going to take a short break from the interview for a word
1: from our partners at matador network
0: are you a travel writer filmmaker or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free Check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips. Sign up for free. That's creators.matadornetwork.com. Happy travels.
1: And now back to the interview.
2: You noted the motorbike uh, motorcycle as one of the main drivers of this change. As someone who considers themselves a a futurist and, and who views technology as overwhelmingly a positive, what else is driving these changes other than the motorbike?
0: Cell phone, um, for sure. No, number one is cell phone, um, and uh, it, its importance it really cannot be under underestimated in 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 transforming change. Um, just just being connected, getting prices for farmers, what what the real price of the goods are, weather. Um, it's their camera and their radio. They use and listen to music. I mean, it's this the everything device that is more powerful to them almost than to us and um uh the i I think little things like um solar again there's a chance to to not have to wait for the for the other people to bring you electricity if you can get in hot water solar hot water is very 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 common so um Solar technologies is another thing that is sort of easing that transition. It's not stopping the transition. There are, there are places in China that were settled for thousands of years that everybody has left the villages and have gone into the cities, and I don't think those villages will ever be inhabited again because it was really terrible soil. The climate wasn't really that good. It was There was really no reason to be there other than if you were desperate. And so, those terraces are going to collapse, and the forest will come back. And um, in some ways, that's a good thing because you didn't really, it didn't really—it really wasn't a great place to try farming. I think that urbanization is going to become the norm. So all the technologies of urbanization are what's propelling that movement. And so. Um, Health care um, that's a huge thing. People move away from the little villages to somewhere where there's more and better health care um, because it does makes a difference and they and they know it and so um, healthcare does kind of move out but but it's economics you know it's it's in general you, you you have to have a critical mass in order to support a hospital so most people will eventually live within 10 kilometers. some kind of health clinic and so um so that's another that's another big factor in in this transition in urbanization uh particularly in asia where hundreds of millions of people are leaving these very beautiful villages with organic food and beautiful indigenous uh, architecture they're going to these grimy cities because they have more choices if they stayed in the village they're going to be a farmer. Eventually maybe there's enough wealth that they could come back and have a second home in it and maybe they could have sort of artisanal things and you can have restaurants and all the kinds of things we see in other places in the world. But that's that's way down the line. That that requires a certain level of affluence that they don't currently have, but they might in the future. Your your experience
1: obviously has been mostly in Asia, but is this vanishing culture phenomenon unique to Asia, do you think? Or is it somehow um, the same thing happening all around the world in different ways?
0: Yes. Yes. It's happening in Africa. It's happening in South America. Asia is, it was interesting to me because the uh, half of the people on the planet alive today are in Asia and the variety of cultures are, um, huge and deep. So, um, but it's true that um, traditional cultures in Africa are maybe disappearing even faster. I don't know. I don't have that much experience in, in Latin America. They're also, I mean, traditional in terms of indigenous cultures are long gone. But even sure. even the kind of colonial culture is, um, is disappearing as well.
1: Do you think Asia's role as a global tech hub is accelerating this decline compared to a place like Africa where these these people, these civilizations are more isolated from one another?
0: Yes. So that's the, for me, the interesting thing about Asia is, is that once there is large remnants of that traditional culture right next to the most futuristic future that you could imagine that's on the planet right now in some places, um, Tokyo and Shanghai and places where they, you know, nobody has cash. It's all digital money. Um, There's uh, the complete penetration of the online world with most millennials' lives. And, um, you know, uh, high-density living with, uh, you know, automated subways. I mean, it was like, yes, that's the... That the future is happening, and the people who are leaving these uh, villages that might have not changed in centuries are going directly into this future world, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of friction. There's there, there's there's an adjustment going on as as um, uh, you know. There's different visions of what that future might look like, and how that plays out is yet to be decided. Um, all the different Asian countries have slightly different, you know Indias kind of approaching the future in a very different way than, than China is. And um, we're gonna there's not a single answer in Asia, is what I'm saying.
2: Is there a certain technology that you think might draw this together, whether that be you know, moving towards a more sustainable, uh, economy that might, you know, then eliminate certain things and make other things unnecessary. For example, you know, rural towns that are built on oil and gas, d- do those towns need to exist yeah, anymore? Yeah. I mean, that's just as relevant in, in the U.S. as it is anywhere else, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, no. Um, well, well, China suffered a huge, uh, um, what's the word I want, painful transition, just like the U.S. when their rust belt also Left so so I mean we think of our Rust Belt being kind of caused by China no 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 we're, because China had the same had, had a lot of the same problems where a lot of the industry that really kind of archaic steel mill stuff um, was replaced by better technology in different places and so um, um, yes I th- I think I think we're going to still um, have have a transition as people move into cities and and fewer people live in rural areas. Uh, as they have, they have more automation. I mean, a lot of this, this, this thing called precision agriculture, where you have robots basically doing the work, they're driving the tractors. They're very precise. They're navigating. They're, they're giving attention and fertilizer one by one to each little individual lettuce plant. I mean, is this really crazy? And so automatic robotic Cow milkers, oh, that's sort of what's coming to the, to the agricultural lands in the US and in Asia as well eventually. And that's going to continue this migration to, to, to urban cities. And so I, I think um, that's one technology. But the other technology that I think is going to make a huge influence on the world economy is, is language translation when you have a little thing in your ear that will translate live um in real time from any language to any language that is hugely important for people who have great skills around the world except for the skill of english you may be the right now if you're the world's best programmer but you can't do english you you, you can't really participate in the global economy but if you can have a real-time translator Man, that suddenly opens up the world for all kinds of people. And then additionally, I think the thing after smartphones is the smart glasses, the uh, mirror world, the metaverse, where we are able to, what we want to have and what these will enable is um, collaboration at scale. So together with language translation and the tools of collaboration at scale that will allow us to have a million people work on a project together in real time. That has never happened before. And the consequences of that are huge. So, and and again, it kind of bypasses a lot of the necessity of being geographically adjacent. And so we have this kind of hybrid remote work thing where you have people far away, who are suddenly able to participate because of language translation and having the tools for collaboration? I think that's where we're headed to in the long term. This is decades away. It's not next year. It's decades as we make these tools. But that's that's where we're going, and that will continue to transform um, these countries.
2: I agree. Um, I-, I on that. Because we're a travel magazine, I'm curious your thoughts on you know these future tech, the metaverse, all of this stuff in bringing travel into the future uh, and, and the role that Asia might play in that because tons of people go backpacking in Asia. There's tons of jobs in Asia. There are all kinds of places that you can move yeah. as a digital nomad or whatever sure, you sure, want to sure. do in Asia. What, what is the future of technology in bringing this all together?
0: Um, and by the way, I, I have a little newsletter called Nomadico which is a, a weekly that has four little tiny bullet things for people who are uh, working while they're traveling. And um, I think that's definitely one of the modes that's going to be um, common. And I think um, the future uh, of travel is basically going to be more. We've had a kind of reset with uh, the with COVID, but I think that's just temporary. Um, I, I think myself i think travel is so important as a vehicle for learning and career and political peace that i think we sh- we as a country i'm speaking of america right now should and other countries should basically subsidize the travel of young people that that, that, that the benefits are so great from what you get um, that, it, that if we could uh, that is worth subsidizing young people to leave their home and go somewhere else, and I think it uh, should be done in a service mode—a mandatory two-year national service where you can do anything you want, including working for the Peace Corps or other kind of of um, services that are outside of your country. That counts as well. But that is so important that I think it's could be it should be subsidized. Uh, will it be subsidized? Probably not. But I think the um, The future of it is um, a a combination of um, virtual and actual travel. So I I, I see more of the virtual enough coming in as as a a mode to assist the actual physical travel. Um, In terms of, um, I... I'm really enamored by the guys who put on a little GoPro on their head and walk through the streets, the back alleys of places in India with no comment. They're just walking the streets and you're seeing what they're seeing. That's kind of like a new kind of a guidebook that that's I I, I think I think we're going to see more overlays with the VR with smart glasses that is in some ways assisting us to physically travel better in terms of that travel as a learning experience. Then there's the travel with working, which I think COVID has proved that this version of remote working absolutely does work. And um, the idea of living somewhere distant that has better climate or maybe better economics or living standards than where you are and working and participating in that global thing that seemed really esoteric and weird with the digital nomads, but I think this is going to become mainstream. Absolutely you, mainstream.
2: Do you think that that could be the solution to uh, paranoia of foreign cultures or paranoia of the other, quote unquote, that we've seen so absolutely, much of recently? Yes.
0: Right. Um, there used to be an old joke that there was no no country, no two countries with the McDonald's who were at war with each other. And. Um, it's not quite true but uh, i i I do think that um one of the best ways to kind of work for a more peaceful world is to have people travel outside their own neighborhoods and outside their own language to others and um you know it's not foolproof it doesn't mean that you become a peacenik just because you travel (laughs) but it does help it does help in Altering your perspective, um, and, uh, and and I'm sure that that more of it is probably better for you as well.
2: Right on, yeah, I uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that perfectly summarizes the uh, I think the view of, of Matador and travel. But uh, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. Before we close out, is there anything else you want to put out? Where can people find you?
0: Yeah, well, um, I made this book called Vanishing Asia, which we've kind of been discussing. And it's, um, as you mentioned, there's 9,000 images. But there's three volumes. It's very, very large, oversized, um, with um, 1,000 plus pages. Um, I divided it into three volumes because it was just simply too heavy to pick up one. Um, And it does kind of record the disappearing cultures between Turkey and Japan. Um, And it was shot over 50 years and there's a little bit of a caption for each image it's available on amazon now and in fact i did a kickstarter and amazon for some reason is able to actually ship it out cheaper than i could do on on kickstarter so, it's, so there's a good deal um, on amazon which will ship out um, you know prime and um... i also uh... mentioned that i had this little newsletter called nomatico which is a free uh... weekly with um... four things done by Tim Leffler, who was the author of The Cheapest Places to Travel in the World. He's a great travel guy. But we do a little kind of um, little, it's kind of newsy of what's happening, what borders are open, what's closed, where to get your golden visa if you want to live in Europe and get a um, permanent residency. And I have kk.org where I do all my other future stuff. Uh, I just did a piece for Wired Magazine on image generators, which will be out soon. So you can keep up with my stuff there. I... Um, Really appreciate your guys' work in trying to promote holistic travel and ways in which it's essential to our own understanding and being in the world. Um, I really uh, encourage people who, if you have the chance, travel. All
2: right. That's a perfect way to close. Thank you so much, Kevin,
1: for coming on. Thanks, Kevin. What do you think? Thanks for listening to No Black Updates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you wanna follow what we're up to, I'm Flow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halkey, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Matador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis.